Welcome to the Novice Nurse Podcast, where I will be talking with new and seasoned nurses about the transition, challenges, and successes of being a registered nurse. I am your host, Amanda Addis, professor at Mid-American Nazarene University and a nurse for the last 14 years. Today on the podcast, we have registered nurse, Caitlin Sadler. She's finishing up her first year in mental health. She's going to give us some great insight into therapeutic communication, recognizing biases, and self-care for the nurse. Let's get started. Well, thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to meet with me and answer questions. If you wouldn't mind telling me a little bit about what prompted you to become a nurse and kind of what your career has looked like so far. Um, so I originally wanted to be a psychologist. Um, so I was a major in psych at KU and for some reason I took anatomy and I was kind of like, okay, hold on. <laughs> like this is really cool. Um, and I just took a lot more interest in the sciences. And so my great aunt was actually an OR manager. I talked to her about it and I was, she's like, you know, if you want to be a psychologist, you have to go get your master's, your doctorate. And she was like, just try nursing. So I did. Um, and I actually wanted to be like ER trauma nurse, but yeah. I went right back to the psych. So yeah. I mean, you jumped right in, right? So you yeah. graduated. When did you graduate? Last May. Okay. I was thinking it was just a year ago yep. and you jumped right in to Cottonwood Springs. Yep. And is that the only place that you're working right now and have worked? Yeah. So I worked there. Um, I recently got a PR and house supervisor position there to kind of like pick up oh. when people on vacation. So yeah, I've been there awesome. a lot. Yeah. So what draws you into that mental health? field. What do you think is the thing that's like, oh, this really fits me? Um, so my family, we have addiction in our family, uh, mental mm -hmm. health. Issues. So for me, it was something that I could relate to more than anything else. Um, but then also just seeing how it's handled, I guess, in everyday life. One of my friends in high school had an eating disorder and seeing how no one understood it. Oh, yeah. well, you're you're skinny. How can you think you're fat? That kind of thing. So it was just more of wanting to educate and get a better understanding myself and then also just the learning experience because a lot of it is nothing like I thought it would be <laughs> so right so you probably did have this idea of, okay I've done some clinical because you got to do a little bit of clinical at Cottonwood Springs right stone uh -huh. yeah you kind of jumped into your job really kind of knowing what to expect but how did that change from like that student role into now you're the nurse yeah, so it was kind of weird. Well, for one, when I did my capstone, everything was on paper. Mm, but yeah. when I was hired on, they had a MAR. We still do paper assessments, but as far as meds go, it was all online. So that was totally different because I was, oh, I feel comfortable here. I've got it. And then I came back and I was like, what the heck? <laughs> I don't have it. <laughs> Where'd their chart go? <laughs> yeah, for me, it was, so I did my capstone um, with, a nurse who was always on the suicidal depression unit, but I have a huge interest in the psychosis, aggression, that kind of stuff. And so that's obviously where I got placed because not a lot of people, that's their first choice. Yeah. So for me, it was not only not having that person to constantly ask questions to, but then having to make decisions immediately on my own. And then also learning psychosis, what causes it, why these people do it, do they do, say what they do, say things that the average person wouldn't say to you, borderline patients. That was a whole new world for me. Yeah. Um, 
like not understanding how they could say something so horrible to someone, but it's a defense mechanism for them. Yeah. So like becoming an actual nurse compared to a student, it was, I didn't have someone to constantly jump in to say the right thing if I wasn't saying the right thing. You kind of just have to learn that on the fly. Yeah. yeah. You learn real quick, like, oh no, I said the wrong thing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just destroyed well, this. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a really long shift now. <laughs> I said the wrong thing right from the beginning. Yep. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> You've got a year under your belt, mm-hmm. um, working mental health. Yes. What do you think is the thing that you've learned? Ooh therapeutic communication, 110%. I always, so I still talk to Ali, Isaac, Sarah, Anessa. We still have our group chat that we had in school and we, cause we're all in different fields. And so we always talk and they're, they're like, Kate, you've got therapeutic communication down to a T. Cause it's kind of, that's almost all you have. People think of like state hospital, if a patient's popping off or something, you just sedate them. But it, Cottonwood does not do any physical restraints, chemical restraints. Everything is de-escalation, verbal de-escalation. So that makes the world of a difference. And now in school, I was like, oh my gosh, why do they talk about therapeutic communication so much? But then I just wouldn't stop, would I? I just kept (laughs) talking about therapeutic communication. (laughs) But now that's all I do. Yeah. It's all therapeutic communication. Isn't that crazy though? Because you think back to learning about therapeutic communication Mm -hmm. and the viewpoint when you're learning about it is very much why are we talking like this? It's so weird. <laughs> Nobody talks like this. Yes. And but somehow I, it works. Yeah. And I never ask why questions. If someone's doing something, I'm like, okay, I can't ask why a question because that's insulting. That's questioning their action. Yeah. But you know, when in school you're like, okay, whatever, what does a why question have to do with anything? But when you get down to it, it is like, that is the fine line between a patient doing something they shouldn't be doing and a patient going over the edge. Yeah. So, yeah, it makes a huge difference. And I think definitely in mental health, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. I feel like if you were to walk into the day room, I don't know if that's what they call it at your, at continent. so if you walk into the day room and a patient is doing something they shouldn't be doing, your first question in, innately is like, why are you doing that? Yeah. Well, <laughs> immediately defenses will come up, right? Yeah. Yes. So it's, you have to learn how to take that out of your vocabulary, at least while you're at work. Yes. Because that's a great way to just offend somebody from the very beginning. Instead of being like, why, why did you think it was a good idea to grab that chair and put it over your head? Instead, it's like, okay, what, what made you react in this way? Like that's probably the number one thing I've learned is half the time patients aren't mad at me. They're not mad at someone within the milieu. They're mad at something happening outside or internal stimuli that's occurring most of the time it's not face value so well yeah and I think as nurses we just have to learn how to not take things personally and to think past ourselves you know yes yeah big time I think our conversation today is it fits so nicely with your background and mental health because we're looking at our own beliefs our own biases personal self-care and then just different strategies for that foundation of that relationship with your patient. I think in mental health, that is the focus, you know, all of those things that we're talking about today. So can you talk to me a little bit about what's shaped your beliefs 
and the way that that has played into the type of nurse you are today. Okay, so my personality is very, if you don't like me, I don't care. I let a lot of stuff roll off my back. Well, yeah. a lot of patients I deal with have years and years of trauma all through their childhood, goes into adulthood. Um, and so for me, if a patient says something to me that is rude, I'm kind of like, okay, whatever. I go home at the end of the night, doesn't matter. But if a patient says something to another patient, a lot of times they take it, that was the most heart-wrenching thing they've ever heard. And for the longest time, I would be like, don't let what they say get to you. It says more about them than it does about you. But to them, they've had so many people build them up just to break them down their entire lives. Yeah. And so for me, I had to change my whole outlook on how other people react and why they do react to things the way they do, take things so personally. And so I would say that's the biggest thing that has changed for me is understanding I didn't go through any trauma. I'm lucky I had a very good childhood, supportive parents. And so I had to really tell myself, okay, but a lot of these people are almost stuck in that childhood way of thinking. They see all good or all bad. So if someone treats them poorly in that moment, that person is a strictly bad person. Yeah. So that was a huge thing I had to realize was not everyone had the same upbringing that I did and have the same outlook that I yeah, did. I hear a lot of times, um, and now this isn't always the case, but whenever a person experiences trauma or, you know, a major crisis at a young age, that definitely depends on the person, but the emotional maturity can kind of stop at that point. Yeah. yeah. And so... I, I feel like I've seen that to ring true with some of the patients I've cared for and kind of, it helps my perspective by keeping that in mind. Yeah. I had um, a patient who his biological dad had raped his half sister when he was three. And so throughout his childhood, he didn't really know, but he started having flashbacks of seeing it. And he, it took him, I think, forever to realize like what he was really seeing but beyond that, there was physical abuse from his dad, and then his mom had trauma herself, so then she was kind of toxic to her kids as well, um, and how she coped with it, and so he has a lot of aggressive outbursts, but this patient also has really good insight, so he'll say, I have these teenage outbursts, and it's very true, zero to 100, if he doesn't get what he wants right then and right now, he flips out. But yeah. it's, he even says that's kind of when everything really happened for him. Yeah. Experiencing the, this uh, trauma at such a young age, if you think about a three-year-old and they don't get what they want, yeah, it, it yeah. looks super quick. So yeah, I was actually talking to a coworker about that on Sunday, saying how a lot of these patients, they have the very childlike mindset of everything revolves around them, very egocentric. But yeah. it's because their whole life, they have to protect themselves. And so they yeah. do have to be egocentric because no one else cares about them. Right. They do have to look out for themselves for sure. Yeah. Yes. So I do think it's difficult, you know, as you care for patients to sometimes not recognize your own biases. Mm -hmm. Have you run into any of that during your first year of being a nurse? Kind yeah. Of so... My very first day on the substance use unit was a train wreck. So that unit, depending on the group of patients you get, because we get 12 patients, sometimes we call them PRN heavy. So they watch the clock, they know what PRNs they have. And that day I felt like every single patient 
was coming up every five minutes to grab something. And so between discharges, admissions, assessments, I got super overwhelmed and I was kind of like, why are they so needy? Why do they need this now? And for me, I, growing up for addiction, I saw the treatment side of addiction. So it was very, I would go visit a family member mm-hmm. on a Sunday at a rehab facility. So like what I saw was protected kid side of it. Yeah. You know, we go to rehab and we play basketball out in the courtyard. It seems so, normal. Yeah. So I never saw the detox and all that. And so it took me a while because at first I was like, these people are, they're so selfish. They're so needy and demanding. But then I was thinking they're coming off of something that their whole, it demands their entire life from them. Um, And even for patients that were rehabbing, that was one thing that they could control, you know, when their next use was, that was their biggest control. And so now they kind of feel they no longer have a sense of control. So that was a big thing. Just learning that population from a treatment side was, yeah. yeah, I had to change completely what I thought. Yeah, I think when you go in and visit somebody in treatment for a very short time, you almost get just the rainbows and butterflies of whatever <laughs> their treatment yeah. looks like. Like it may be going pretty good, but day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute, those cravings and that mm-hmm. intense addiction is pulling at them. Yeah, and most of the time, I think what was most interesting and what was kind of a revelation for myself was these people aren't just addicts. They're a lot of times, they themselves have been through years of trauma. We had one girl who she have outbursts go off and that's unheard of on that unit. Everyone's pretty docile. It's pretty chill. Yeah. Um, but she's going off. Well, come to find out she was in a trap house around dead bodies of people who have overdosed. She, the trauma just from the few weeks before she came in was enough to get her but then also like there's usually trauma that is the reason they use drugs to cope so yeah it definitely made it more okay they didn't just they weren't just at a party and were like you know what I'm gonna try meth today (laughs) there's a reason they try it (laughs) yeah well and I feel like a lot of times there's a ton of thought behind why they're choosing their drug of choice Oh yeah, on our psychosis unit, a lot of times they'll do meth because it quiets the voices. Mm -hmm. And so in that moment, yeah, it quiets the voices, but then long-term it causes more damage than anything. Sometimes I think it just catches their mind up with the voices versus (laughs) quieting the voices. They just seem quieter. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I want to ask you something about what you said earlier. You have 12 patients at a time. I think that most places... That's unheard of, not mental health. Most places, you know, in nursing, so people that are listening, the students that are listening, they're probably going 12 patients. No way I would work there. So tell me a little bit about the patient workload, just because you mentioned that. And I know ears had to perk up when you said 12 patients. Um, So we have certain criteria for admission. They all have to be able to do their ADLs kind of take away the normal patient load of helping them to the restroom, helping them bathe. They all do that themselves. They make their beds, change their beds, shower, do laundry. We try to have them be as independent as possible. From a nursing standpoint, we pass meds, do assessments, and then we're kind of the firemen on the unit, putting out fires (laughs) wherever they come. For my day, um, the first 15-20 minutes we're there, we get report. Um, We pull meds for our 12 patients, which most of them are usually on quite a few meds on the unit I'm on just because they're 
puzzles basically themselves. Yeah. And so then eight to 10, we do morning med pass. And so they, we have like a med window that they come up to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where we do like their morning assessments where we ask rate their anxiety, their depression, um, if they're having thoughts of harming themselves or others, if they're having hallucinations, paranoia. So we kind of go through the psych and then we go to the medical side of if they're having any pain, um, just because a lot of times that pain, chronic pain is a huge deal in mental health, mm-hmm. breathing and bowel movements because so many psych meds kind of get yeah. that out of whack. Um, so that's kind of what our first two hours look like. The rest of it is like a cat and mouse race of trying to finish your assessments while doing everything else. So it's different too, because like our nurse's station in med surge, you go to the nurse's station and you don't have a patient. Whereas like our nurse's station, we're open game all day. <laughs> so yeah. it's constant patient interaction. Yeah. So do you feel, cause like most med surge nurses would not perform an assessment of any type on a patient at the nurse's station while you're passing meds at the nurse's <laughs> station. So it's, it's a very different setup. Do you feel like that is a confidential place? Are there other patients standing in line right behind them? How does so that work? We have the nurse's station, and then there's a med room right behind the nurse's station. And so there are windows out to the unit split in half. So like one nurse has... Mm-hmm the even side and one has the odd side based on room numbers. Um, and so we always ask patients to let back up. Most of the time they're not standing in a physical line. A lot of times we have yeah. to hunt them. <laughs> it's usually pretty private. If I know a patient is minimizing a lot during assessment, I usually go back and talk to them in their room. Um, because the other day I had a patient who said he wasn't hallucinating and wasn't paranoid. And then when I went in his room, he was laughing to himself all day. Yeah. And I was like, what's going on? And he was like, oh, nothing. And I was like, are you hearing or seeing anything that's bothering you? Well, he thought he was seeing monsters and bugs in his room, which like, obviously I knew something was going on because he was laughing to himself in his room. But it's kind of one of those things where you have to make that nursing call of they're not there because nothing's happening to them. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of it is you assess them, but then you're like, okay, was that the true assessment? (laughs) Because a lot of times it's not the true assessment. So yeah, I yeah. would imagine many times you end up going back and doing a secondary yeah. follow-up on these things that just kind of give you the gut reaction. This is not quite right. Yeah, a lot of times they're like, oh no, I'm not paranoid. And then you'll notice a patient interaction and I had a patient who wasn't paranoid, but then watching him interact with others, he was convinced that one of our patients wanted to murder another patient. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, how do you know this? Oh, I just know. A lot of it is watching social interaction more than anything. Yeah, and that's something you get on a mental health unit that you don't get anywhere else. Yeah. Um, Do they have to have some sort of medical clearance before they come into your facility too so that you know medically they're safe? Yeah, they do. Um, For substance use, we cut it off at a certain um, blood alcohol level just because we, as a psych hospital, we don't have IVs. We don't have anything. It's funny because if I watch... A medical show, they'll show a patient's room, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you can't have that in there. You can't have that in there. That's a ligature risk. <laughs> yeah. So we really do have to make sure they're medically stable, just because we, because of safety reasons, we can't do a lot of medical treatment. Um, we send out patients a lot 
to area ERs if we feel like we can't take care of them. Um, but most of the time, we get a lot of directs from other hospitals. Yeah. So we can look over their records and make the call for ourselves. Um, and then we'll also get walk-in patients or patients who have appointments for assessments. Um, so we just kind of talk to them. A lot of times if they've had an overdose attempt, within a certain amount of time, we'll send them out just to make sure there's no residual effects for that or when their last drink was and where their blood alcohol level's at at that time. So, Yeah, so you're not doing, I'm, I mean, I'm assuming on our like med search floors, we will do CWAS and administer meds IV. They have to be a lot more stable than that when they come to you. Yeah, so everything has to be um, PO or IM. Um, yeah, like and we'll preferably do not IM, right? Yes, that is like the last <laughs> resort because yeah. that usually causes more problems than anything else. But like on our subunit, we do CWAS, we do cows. Most of the time, they're fine. We do have some patients who will detox a lot harder or it's their first time detoxing, so they don't know what to expect. Um, and they'll have delirium tremens. So that's something where we'll watch them and then we usually have to send them out at that point for medical. It just gets a little too unsafe. Yeah, I had a patient who he was like perfectly fine the day before and then day three of his detox he went into DTs and he was sitting in his room sitting in his feces in his desk chair and I was like hey do you want to get some clothes on I can help you clean up and he was like no I'm fine I'm just hanging out. Okay. <laughs> Red flags. <laughs> yep. A lot of times it's something like that or I had a patient who kept saying I was his wife and his housekeeper, but he was no longer able to track in conversations. Right. So a lot of times it's like something like that. And we always ask, you know, your typical A&O times four questions. And I had a patient who thought he was at Prairie Village. Mm. <laughs> so, nope. yeah. yeah. So a lot of times it is that social interaction. You'll get patients who are talking to them and the patients will kind of look at you like, what the heck is, what's this guy's deal? Yeah. So then, yeah, we have to send them out because at that point, it's more of a medical issue. And I think that a lot of times our patients, no matter their mental illness, they're really good at covering up for a while and yeah. they just can't do that anymore. Yeah. And so I think it's really good to be able to pick up on, okay, they can't cover this anymore. We've got to <laughs> do a little more. You've been mentioning a lot of different stories about patients, and I could see at some point, if this isn't your passion, or even if it is, you have a bit of burnout with yeah. and the types of patients you have. So self-care in our society and with nurses is huge. What are some things that you do to promote your personal health, encourage that self-renewal that keeps you kind of on the top of your game? Um, so first... Okay, so I always cluster my shifts. So I like to do three to four in a row, which people are always like, why do you do that? That's so hard. Well, because then my days off are in a row. I worked one week where it was every other day I was working and I felt like I just never had a break because my day off I was recovering, but then I was also anticipating. Yeah. So I felt like I couldn't just relax. Um, so I try to cluster my shifts and then I have no problem saying no to overtime. Right now with coronavirus, we're at capacity all day, every day. They're, every day we are getting texts asking if we could come in for extra help. And so it's hard because you wanna say that you can come in because you know the hospital's in need of the extra help, but then you also have to take care of yourself. 
So I, I, that was something I had to work on was saying no to overtime. But I try to tell myself that I can't pour from an empty cup. I would say that's my biggest thing is not picking up overtime. Especially as a new, you want to do that so badly. Well, and you feel like you're supposed to. When they ask you, it almost doesn't seem like an option to say no. It's like, hey, I need you to come in. (laughs) Instead of asking you if you will, it's like, hey, Caitlin, I need you to come in from 3 to 11. We're short a nurse, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, okay, I guess I'll be in. (laughs) And now now you realize, you know, after getting that year under your belt, the question is, would you be willing to come yes. <laughs> And the answer is, no. <laughs> yeah, and my nurse manager and director of nursing, they're, they're, they rotate who's on call for nursing. Um, and so they have both made it very clear it's not expected of you to come in. Because yeah. at first, I was picking up anything and everything. Like, I wanted to be, I never wanted to say no. <laughs> yeah, and it becomes like the whole work in life balance okay so they can rely on me but then my family can't rely on me to be there or if I am there I'm so mentally exhausted I don't want to talk about anything of value right like <laughs> I'm done yes yeah so I would th- say that would be the biggest don't be afraid to say no to overtime since I always work four shifts in a row my first day off I don't do anything I don't make any plans if I don't get out of bed all day that's okay <laughs> so yeah, I don't and if like- you want to go get your nails done then you can do it. Or if you want yes. to wander around Target, that's yes. your prerogative, you know? Yes. Maybe not right now with COVID, but you know, go wander. Yeah, exactly. Someone texts you like, hey, Caitlin, you want to go hang out? And you're like, I'm sorry. I'm really busy looking at lightning deals on Amazon. Yes. <laughs> I'm booked. Sorry. All booked up. Going to wash my hair later. So, no, I think those are really good things to point out. I love the idea of your first day off being for you. Yep. Now, so I love that you have a few, a huge focus on therapeutic relationships with your patients. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about how you develop that foundation with them for that relationship or what that first interaction with the patient looks like? Maybe just some practical tips on how to create that meaningful therapeutic relationship with your, with your patients. Um, so for me, I always try to bring in like their personal life a little bit. Um, it's obviously easier to do in mental health than it would be on like a med search floor um, because a lot of times their personal life is what brought them to us. Right. Um, but I'll try to overhear a conversation that they may ha- be having with another staff member or another patient and just kind of integrate that into a conversation I'll have with them. I've had my own struggles with mental illness. So a lot of times like I'll use that, like I've been where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, there's hope with the correct help. You definitely have a chance of being a high functioning individual. Yeah. Um, so I kind of try to play the I've been where you are card. But then also what's different, like, tell me what's different from your situation than what mine probably was. So a lot of it is just trying to let them feel like they can express more for me. I feel like in mental health too, it's also easier because when a patient starts getting their discharge plan wrapped up, we truly do get excited for them. I have a patient who she got a new case manager with a crisis diversion case manager. And like, that's a big deal because they harass you. Like, they call you all the time, yeah. keep you in work. 
So like I was so excited for her because she's been one of those patients who struggles. She's been to us multiple times. Um, she's one of those that I fear would accidentally overdose. Um, instead of a cry for help, I worry that she would accidentally complete. Um, so like for someone like that, they, it's weird because they almost become family to you and they've been there so many times. So it's kind of like you pick up where you left off and you get excited for them. Um, so in situations like that, those patients can help you with other patients because the new patients to the facility can see like your interactions with them. And so mm -hmm. it kind of helps make them feel comfortable and think like, oh, staff actually does care about us. Because yeah. um, a lot of times you do have those patients who you could consider to be institutionalized where they have had such traumatic past that anytime there's a problem, they run to a facility like this just because that's their biggest support system. So. Well, I mean, and it's good for them to have that if they don't mm -hmm. have a support system outside. And it sounds like um, by this patient getting this case manager that's going to call them all the time, that's that added support that she's going to need out in the community to maybe not need you guys quite as much. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's, it's exciting though. We definitely get like, it's one of those things where you get so like encompassed in their treatment yeah. that you're riding that fine line of blaming yourself if they don't get to where you want them to be, but also like wanting them to get better. So like you want them to get good. So good. Like it's right between where it could be what you think about when you go home and then yeah. like you have to, it's that fine line all the time. Yeah. You do have to remind yourself that they're the individual making the choices for themselves. Mm -hmm. We just yeah. need to the care that we can with as much empathy as we can mm -hmm. so that they don't think we're being judgmental and I know whenever I taught you guys in mental health I always said I had to learn how to like hide my face yes. like <laughs> they they tell your patients tell you things even in med surge that I think sometimes it's just to see what reaction you're gonna have oh, and so so the more practice you get with like oh okay you know like Thanks for telling me that versus yeah. like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, like even if yeah. your voice says, oh, okay, thanks for telling me that. And your eyes are like big as saucers. Yes. <laughs> you know? I had a patient the other day who, so it's funny because after this interaction, my coworker was like, that was the best poker face I've ever seen. <laughs> so this patient, she's been with us for a while. Um, she's an Oshkap, which means that she would normally go to Osawatomi, um, but because they're so full like us and KU are able to take their overflow. Mm. Uh, so she's like just a very complicated case, um, very sick. And she came up to me and she was like, Melissa, I didn't like you in high school. You were mean to me in high school. I deleted you on Facebook. You could have texted me and you didn't get into nursing school because that's why you're a dance teacher. And I was like, okay. <laughs> you <laughs> have to like not laugh. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, okay. <laughs> but it's just like those off the wall conversations where, you know, to them it's something very distressing. Yeah. But you're like, what the heck just happened? <laughs> yeah, I've had those. They've come up and told me things, and I'm like, oh, okay, thanks for telling me that. And then yeah. they walk away, and you turn and look at someone at the nurse's station or another, you know, an, an, another tech or something, and they look at you like, how did you just have that conversation and not laugh? Like, I don't yeah. know. 
And I think too, like what helps with the whole like poker face thing is like working with the same group of people all the time. Like that's something I've noticed like Cottonwood does very well. Um, We have, so the unit that I usually am on is Sunrise. And so we have like our Sunrise nurses and PCAs. And so we kind of all like know the patients, know each other. Like we can tell when someone's making a poker face or like they're actually concerned. So it helps to have that like group of coworkers that you just are super in tune with. Yeah. And that is another kind of continuing thread through most of the conversations that I've had with nurses is their work team is their work family and everybody knows each other so well, they know how to respond. And, you know, you may not say anything that a patient is going to pick up as like a, Hey, I need help, but Mm -hmm. you're going to say something to the patient and your other nurse is going to show up with you. Yes. You know, it's just really nice that we just become so integrated within that work family that it's, you almost don't even have to say anything for your backup to show up. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so. I feel like it's especially important in mental health. Like we'll, sometimes patients kind of pick that one staff member and that's who they're I don't want to say harass, but that's who they are like picking on all day. Yeah. And I was that staff member to a patient one day. And like, I got to the point, I was like, well, I don't know what else to tell you. And it was instantly a PCA was like, Hey, let's go look at this over here. It's they're like, yeah. they don't even miss a beat. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so great. Oh, I've had a good time talking with you about all of these things. And, and it's really has been so true. Like everything on this list is so relatable to mental health. I'm excited too, because I'm going to talk with um, Abby from your class Uh about the same stuff, but it's not going to have that mental health spin on it. So I'm really interested to see how those two conversations differ because I just think that's so cool, especially with therapeutic relationship and how much you have to work. Like that's your tool of your in your tool belt, you know, that you pull out every time you're with a patient. Because if you lose the poker face, if you laugh, if you get a little angry, if, you know, Mm -hmm. that's going to escalate really quickly versus remembering how to therapeutically interact with your patients. Yeah. I always say like with my psychotic patients, it's kind of like you're dealing with an Alzheimer's patient. Sometimes you just have to play the game, go along with it. um, Because if they are told that their reality is not true, it sets them off no different than an Alzheimer's patient. So yeah, it's always that. Yeah, and I remember we had conversations, you know, back in mental health class and we would say, you know, if someone's hallucinating or seeing things that aren't there, hearing things that aren't there, it's okay for us to say, well, I'm not hearing those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that doesn't upset them. No, because it almost you say, that's better. not real. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's not real. Or if I were like, well, with that one patient, like, well, my name's not Melissa. Well, she doesn't care that my name's not Melissa because she thinks <laughs> I am who I am. <laughs> right. Um, right. That's her reality. Yeah. Whereas like for hallucinations, as far as hearing or seeing things, like sometimes the patients need to hear that, you know, it's not what everyone else is hearing because it can be so distressing to them. Yes. Like they think everyone's hearing this. Why is no one else reacting to it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really easy to say, you know, I'm not experiencing what, what you're experiencing, but that sounds pretty scary. You yeah. know, they're going to respond to that in a much better way than like, nobody else can hear that. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, 
I guess kind of my final question, and I've been asking this to everybody that I've had the chance to talk to, is you've been in this for a year now. So what are three things a year ago that you wish you would have known when you very first started your career as a nurse? Um, I would say, say no to overtime because I feel like when you first start, you have that passion, that new nurse passion. If you don't say no to overtime, you will burn out very quickly and you can almost become to despise your field. Um, I would also say, don't be the nurse that has to be the hero. I feel like a lot of times as a new nurse, you think you have to do it all and it's okay to kind of tap out and realize you're still learning. That's another great way to burn yourself out is to think that you can do it all. Um, It's okay to reach out to your peers. Um, And lastly, I would say no question is a stupid question. And I know that's said all the time, but I've trained um, new hire, new nurses. And I always say like, I would rather you ask me a question that you think is so stupid than for me to have to fix a med error. Yeah. Like no question is stupid because it's not going to kill a patient. Right. Like that question that you could have asked could have prevented a major issue. I mean, especially on the psych side, one difference in an antipsychotic can increase their stay big time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that would be my thing for sure is like, don't be afraid to ask a question. And if a nurse gives you an attitude for asking a question, like that truly does say more about them as a person and their empathy and yeah. anything that it says about you trying to avoid a error. So yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, I really appreciate the conversation that we've had. And I think that these nursing students in the class are going to enjoy hearing your perspective, especially in mental health. Not everybody wants to be a mental health nurse, but we actually all have to have that in our arsenal. Yes. And so I think that the topics that we have touched on today are going to be super helpful to any nurse in any field because therapeutic communication is a big deal. <laughs> yeah, and everyone has psych patients. It yeah. might not be inpatient psych patients, but everyone has psych patients. Yeah, because depression, anxiety, bipolar, all of it. You yeah. just may oh. not, that's not their biggest problem when you see them on med surge. Yep. Maybe it is their bowel obstruction. You know, that's a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't mean that they're not still dealing with their mental illness as well. Yeah. yeah. So Okay, well, I'm super appreciative. Thanks so much for taking time out of here. Gosh, enjoy your second year of nursing. I know. (laughs) And quit. Yes, it did. (laughs) All right, well, I'll talk to you later, Caitlin. All right, bye. Bye. Hi, this is Amelia. Thanks for joining my mom on the Novice Nurse Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Join me next time when I talk with Abby, a nurse that just transitioned from the emergency room to the NICU. Until then!